0: Let's begin our time by reading the passage that we'll be looking through today. We find ourselves back in 1 John this morning, 1 John chapter 3, we'll be covering verses 19 through 24, and let us begin there. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him, and whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved. If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He commanded us. The one who keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in Him. We know by this that He abides in us, by the Spirit whom He has given us. This is the Word of God. Please be seated. There are, broadly speaking, two categories of people when it comes to putting a piece of furniture together, whether it's from Ikea or Target or any other store. Stick with me and I think you'll agree. In the first category, you have those individuals who meticulously follow every word contained in the instruction booklet. These individuals are reading and rereading and rereading every step along the way, convinced that they will make a mistake, When a mistake is made, that person will be convinced that everyone will be able to see that mistake even if it's just the slightest piece of wood left askew. And in the end, when that person reaches the final product and they see there are a few leftover bolts and screws and whatnot in the box, they will be convinced that a grave error has been committed, that they have somehow skipped a step along the way and that that piece of furniture will ultimately fail to do what it was set out to do. On the other category... This is the category I find myself in. There are those people who are a little less concerned about the instructions. Uh, Very confident, you could say, uh, that it doesn't take a rocket scientist to put together a nightstand. These individuals will be less prone to reread any directions. If any mistake is made, these individuals say, Ah, don't worry about it, no one's going to notice that. And in the end, when they see those same screws, those same bolts left in the box, what will they say immediately? Oh, don't worry about it, they always include extras in the box, right? These people have no idea whether or not that's true. They've just heard other self-assertive people make the statement and they think, yeah, yeah, that sounds sounds reasonable, right? If you're married to a person who is the opposite category of you, you know how challenging it can be to put a piece of furniture together. I'm not going to tell you how well it goes in my house when it comes time to put furniture together, but I will say I just let Jamie take care of it, and it goes a lot better, a lot less mistakes being made. These are general tendencies a lot of people have, both in in accomplishing some basic tasks around the home, and you can also see those same tendencies carried out in other facets of daily life, even when we look at at how people can be characterized in the way they approach the practice of their faith. well, For even in spiritual matters, there are those people, those professing believers, that like that first category of people, will be marked constantly with a sense of self-doubt. Uh, With this this tendency to look at the word over and over and over again, concerned that they might get the smallest point wrong. These individuals will constantly question whether or not they are in the will of God. They will assume that the slightest mistake they make will be noticed by God and also by everyone else. And so they are typically a little more timid in speaking of their faith as the fear of being a hypocrite might be reigning high in their mind. And regardless of how, j- how well done they do their job, in the end they will assume, well, it's, it's all for naught. Surely that's not going to be good enough. There are many other believers who tend to fall in the latter category. These are self-assertive people that assume that, that everything's going great. In fact, if you ask this person how things are going, they will without a beat say, great, everything's great. These people will rarely have any doubt in the doctrines they hold to. They will assure you that every thinking person agrees with them. And they will carry through this life with this self-assertion, this belief that this is what the life of a truly faithful person looks like. Oftentimes, we can really sway from one category to the other depending on how our day is going. We can be nagged by doubt one day and marked by self-assertiveness the next. And we can make the mistake in believing that, that one of those categories is naturally where we are called to live. Many of us who are marked by doubt long to be that self-assertive person, long to be that person that, that is constantly in a cheerful mood. But the reality as we look to 1 John and as we look to all of Scripture is that the assurance of a believer and really the obedience of a faithful disciple does not flow either from constant self-doubt, nor does it flow from that self-assertion. Oh, no, the confidence of the Christian and the resulting obedience seems rather from a growing sense of dependency upon Christ. It comes from an honest recognition of our weaknesses and our failures, but it also comes from that understanding of where our strength comes from. As we look at 1 John again, we understand why this is so important. And my prayer as we look at it today is that for those of you who are nagged by that sense of doubt, you will see the remedy for your doubt, as John reminds us. And for those of us who perhaps need a little extra dose of humility... You might be reminded of the results of a truly assured heart and what that assured heart looks like. As we do this, again, we'll be exploring 1 John three nineteen through 24. But before we get into that cure for a doubting heart, let's open our time in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for today. We thank you that despite all of the rain, many of us are still able to make it today. And we pray that the time we have now to dig into your word might be spent in a way that's glorifying to you. God, again, we thank you for this Mother's Day, this opportunity to be thankful for the women you've placed in our lives who have raised us, who have cared for us. We thank you for those of us who are able to still have that relationship with our mothers and pray that we might be quick to acknowledge their work. And we know that you acknowledge their work and you honor the work they do. But again, we also see that today can be a day of anguish for many others. And so we pray for comfort for those of us who have lost our mothers, for those of us who long to be mothers and have yet been given that gift. Ultimately, God, I pray that as we look at your word today, we might all be encouraged. Might we be reminded of the confidence we can ultimately have, not in our own abilities, not in what we accomplish, but in what you accomplish through us, God. God, remove all distractions from our minds this morning. Cause us to see the the beauty of the gospel in a way we've never seen it before. Cause us to be more amazed by the glory of your son. And as a result, God, caused us to become more and more like him so that daily we might live out our calling confidently, knowing it is your will that is ultimately accomplished. And it's to that end, we pray all these things. Amen. We begin our time in verses 19 and 20 and address this common concern, this common struggle of doubt. Again, picking it up back up in verse 19 and 20, we read, we will know by this, That we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. If you were here with us a couple weeks ago, you already understand what John is saying when he says, By this we know we are in the truth. For John has been explaining and exploring the role of love in the Christian life. And as he is described very clearly in verses 11 through 18, it is a love for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that really is supposed to characterize every single Christian. Regardless of your level of maturity, regardless of how young or old you are, you should be marked, you will be marked, by a growing practical love for other Christians. And so as a result, you will be marked by seeking out Others, trying to fulfill their needs, trying to find ways to practically serve them. And as John says, when you do this, when you are marked by this love for others, well, you know you're growing. You know you're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. There's a certain amount of confidence to this, but as he says in verse 19, and as he gets into verse 20, this basic and plain statement also opens up the door to a bit of doubt, doesn't it? For if you have even an ounce of humility, you understand that there's a lot more to this command of love others. If you've ever even attempted to fulfill one need of a fellow brother and sister in Christ, you have no doubt been struck with the realization of the fact that, wow, there are a lot of needs out there. Regardless of how much you try, regardless of how self-sacrificial you might be, you will, I will always fall short of the perfect standard, won't we? For there's always going to be good deeds we could accomplish that we choose not to. Not only that, but when we accomplish these good deeds, oftentimes we know in our heart of hearts that we've done it for selfish reasons. We've done it to try to be noticed by other people. We've done it for the praise of man. So oftentimes even when we perform these acts of service, well, we know in our heart of hearts that we haven't quite met that standard that God sets for us. For God is not simply concerned with our physical acts, but he's concerned with our heart. And so, as clear as God's expectations are regarding what we are to do for our fellow believers, the ever-present reality is the fact that we will always fall short. And when we fall short, there will be an endless stream of people who are willing and able to bring accusations against us. You, again, have experienced this, no doubt. In the midst of doing good, there will always be that naysayer questioning your motivation. There will always be those people in the world that will say, well, you should be doing more than this. There's people that do this all the time with respect to the church. Regardless of how active the church might be in, say, adoption, there will be those people in the world that would say, well, if the church really cared about people, then you would see the more active and taking care of the needy and taking care of those babies who need a home. Regardless of how active we might be, the world will always accuse us of falling short of the standard that we speak of. Not only that, But we understand there is, of course, the greater enemy, Satan himself, who will accuse us, who will cause us to question our motives, who will cause us to doubt our abilities. He is that great accuser, that one who is called the great deceiver, the father of lies, and he is actively engaged in warfare against each and every one of us. And so we can trust the fact that regardless of how hard we might work, that that enemy will still be at work against us. Lobbing accusations against us, calling into question whether or not we really are known by love. And at the deepest level, perhaps the most difficult level, is this struggle that John speaks of. For even apart from the world and, the, and Satan who accuses us, John also speaks of the fact that our own hearts accuse us at times. And again, we all experience this. We all experience this this nagging doubt at the back of our minds. That little voice that is asking you if you're really doing enough. That little voice that is quick to remind you of regardless of how obedient you've been today, remember yesterday when you failed miserably. Remember that, God saw that. That little voice in the back of our mind that will say, did you really do it with the best of intentions? Are you really living up to the standards that God sets for you, or are you just a hypocrite like everyone else? Again, if we have even an ounce of humility, all of us will experience this accusation because all of us fall short. And so in the midst of this doubt, doubt that is caused at times by real truthful accusations, but doubt that is also caused at times by by false accusations, so there's both truth and falsity in this, the question is, how can our hearts ever really be at rest before God? How can we, to use the language of John, know that we are of the truth and be at rest before an eternal and perfect Father? Well, how on earth can we be confident? What is the cure to that doubt? Well, and John tells us, the defeater to that doubt is quite surprising, for it's not in our own self-assertiveness, nor is it in our just ability to do more, but again, Look at verse 19 and 20. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our hearts before him and whatever our heart condemns us for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. The cure for your doubt believer is not in your belief that you are good enough. It's not in that calling to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and just do more better. The cure for your doubt is ultimately the knowledge of God. It's in his omniscience, it's in his, his, his assertion of your status in, in your life as his child. John has spoken of the peace and comfort that comes from this omniscience before. But we see other biblical authors speak of that same peace, that, that same confidence that comes in that all-knowing God. The psalmist in Psalm 103 speaks of the fact that the God understands we are frail. God understands we are but dust, and in that knowledge there's a comfort for we know that God is not surprised by your failure, ever. God is not surprised when you fail to have the best intentions. God is not surprised when you fail to take care of the needs, even the needs that you could take care of. No, God's all-knowing, so he knows you're weak. He knows you're going to fail, and so he's not surprised by this. He's not sitting in heaven thinking, oh, I really was hoping they would get it right this time. Ah, maybe I should just move on to the next one. It's never the picture of God. No, he's all-knowing. There's pleasure. There's peace. There's confidence in that. There are many examples of this confidence that we can see in Scripture, but I think one of the more powerful examples comes in the person of Peter. If you would turn back to me and see this question to John, tw- or see this question answered in John 21. Peter is a great example for us for throughout the Gospels accounts, he is the picture of confidence, or at least what we would assume to be the picture of confidence, Right? Peter's always the first to stand up, the first to speak. Peter's the first to, to be that assertive person who swears that he will never leave Jesus aside. In fact, just a few chapters before in John, Peter said exactly that. When Jesus spoke of the fact that the disciples were fleed, Peter said, No, I will die before I will disappoint you, Jesus. Of course, as many of you already know, despite the confidence of Peter, despite the fact that I think he fully did believe that about himself in the moment, Peter, of course, fails miserably. For after Jesus is arrested, Peter famously denies even knowing Christ. And he denies it not in some intense court, uh, in, in some trial, standing before someone with great power. He does it before a servant girl. Peter is revealed to be a coward in that moment. Peter fails as miserably as you can imagine failing. You can imagine the anguish that Peter experienced after failing. You can imagine the mixture of anguish and joy after Peter sees the risen Christ. For if you're Peter, you no doubt will be thinking, well, I wonder what Jesus is going to say to me now. Now, If you're Peter, you're no doubt joyed to see Jesus, but but if you failed like Peter failed, well, you're probably a bit nervous to stand before the risen Son of God, aren't you? And yet we see in John 21 this beautiful interaction between Peter and... In Jesus, in which we see the the power and the comfort that is found not in Peter's self assertion, but in the all knowing God, here God the Son. Follow along with me as we read John twenty one verses fifteen. Beginning of verse fifteen. So when they had finished breakfast, this is after the resurrection, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Here we see this beautiful interaction between Peter and Jesus. An interaction, again, that must have filled Peter's heart with at least temporary anguish as he so desperately wants Jesus to know that, that he really does love him. He really does want to serve him, but unlike those so many other opportunities when Peter asserts himself, and tries to present himself as this strong disciple here, Peter ultimately reveals that his, his trust in Christ, or that ultimate assertion, cannot come from his own mind, but it must be confirmed by Jesus Christ. This is why in that third time when Jesus asks him if he loves him, Peter responds not just with, you know this, but he says, you know all things, so you know I love you, Jesus. One commentator speaking to this passage says that experience had taught Peter to distrust even his own judgment of himself. So even when the fact is one of immediate consciousness, Peter rested his assertion, not on his own beliefs, but on the Lord's direct insight. It is here in John 21 that for the first time we really see what true confidence looks like in Peter. It's not in the self-assertive Peter that we see throughout the Gospels. It's not in that person that's quick to jump up and say, yes, I can do this, I have the abilities. It's in the person who, who in humility acknowledges their failures, and acknowledges that ultimately their ability rests entirely upon Jesus Christ. That's true confidence. That's the confidence we strive to have as believers. And this is so important to understand because even in our culture today, I think too many people still try to relate with the, with the Peter pre-resurrection. We still associate true confidence with that self-assertiveness of Peter, pre-crucifixion and resurrection, and we think that's what confidence looks like. But true confidence in Scripture is this confidence that that comes after brokenness. It requires humility. It requires not a, a greater belief in oneself, but a growing, increasing dependence and belief in Jesus Christ. And so as John reminds us back in 1 John chapter 3, the key to assurance and the ability to rest our heart before God does not come in what we know to be true about ourselves. It comes in what God knows to be true. And what God knows to be true is that we are His children. And so believer, if you are struggling without this morning, whether it's because of, of some sin you truly have committed, or because of some false accusation the world lobs against you, understand this: that, that God does not hold that against you. God views you as His forgiven child. Rest in that knowledge. Rest not in what the world says about you, but rest in what Christ has declared to be about you for all eternity. That's the only cure to doubt. That's the only remedy. And so we strive to rest our hearts before him, and we do this by the knowledge of God. Assuming that we've taken care of that then, or rather assuming we've allowed God to remove that doubt from our hearts, we then move into verses 21 and 24, and we begin to see what the results of this assurance look like what the obedience of this unfettered, shameless heart is before God. And as we look at these verses, we'll see two broad results. The first result being unhindered prayer. The second being unhindered obedience. We begin with prayer. Look with me, if you will, to verse 21 through 22. John again says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, We have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Believers, John says, if that doubt has been removed, we now have confidence before God. Now, if you were with us earlier in chapter three, this this picture of confidence is nothing new, although it should still be astounding to all of us. For earlier in chapter 3 of 1 John, he spoke, or rather in chapter 2 and chapter 3, he spoke of the confidence we will one day have in the day of judgment. Meaning if we are in Christ, when we come before Christ in judgment, we will stand with confidence because we know we will be saved. We know that God's wrath does not rest upon us. As we come to the end of chapter 3 here, we see this confidence is not simply reserved for that future day of judgment. That confidence is something we experience in the here and now. John is not the only one to speak of this confidence. The author of Hebrews also describes it. In Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews says this, in verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh... And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The author of Hebrews there captures how shocking this confidence really should be in our minds. And he speaks of this Old Testament language of entering into the presence of God. If you've read any of the Old Testament, you are perhaps at least somewhat familiar with that language of, of the temple, of that place where God resided. And you know that that only a select few could enter into the presence of Yahweh. And even those select few, those priests, if they failed to uphold the law, well, they would die as a result. And so throughout the hundreds and hundreds of years of the Old Testament, only a select few individuals could ever enter God's presence. But then something radically shifts with Jesus Christ. Because as a result of his sacrifice... As a result of his blood spilled on the cross, and as a result of his ongoing work as our high priest, John and the author of Hebrews, reminds us, every single one of us can enter into the presence of God anytime we please. At any moment, you can simply speak to the Creator of the universe. You can simply approach him with no fear and trepidation. You can do that which only a select few have ever been able to do throughout the history of the world. But in order to do it properly in these verses, we see we must hold two realities in balance. The first reality speaks to our own status and our own weaknesses. John has spoken to this already, and we've mentioned it this morning. But We must remember that according to 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, that we do not simply approach God as a peasant approaches the king. We approach God as a child approaches his father speaks to our status as God's adopted children. Remember this language in chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God, and such we are. Believer, do you realize this? Do you realize that when you enter into the presence of God, he is just as joyed to see you as a loving father is joyed to see his own child approach him? That is your status. That is why you are confident, yet at the same time, we also acknowledge there ought to be this, this heart of humility in it. For while we are children who are striving to obey the Father, we're still children who are disobedient at times. John's referenced that already as well. In First John chapter 1 and 2, he's spoken of the reality of sin, the need to continually confess our sins before God. And so as Christians, our confidence is marked both by this confidence in our standing before God, but also this Humility. requires that we really know who we are. It requires that we strive to become more and more like him. It requires that we strive to be obedient, as John himself says in chapter 3, verse 22. But as we understand that same status or that status of us, we also must hold, in the other hand, that, that understanding of who God is. For again, as we mentioned, God is both our Father as well as our King. And so we understand our limitations. We also understand the grandeur that God himself deserves. We understand that he loves us. He is faithful. And perhaps most importantly in our passage today, we understand what God has promised us. Don't miss the amazing statement John says about prayer here. Again, verse 22, whatever we ask, we receive from him. Whatever you ask, Sinner, whatever you ask of the all-powerful, all-knowing king of creation, he not only hears your request, he grants us our requests. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? It's one thing to think that you have the ability to stand before God and even speak. And it's an entirely different thing to think he hears you, but then it takes it to an entirely different level. He would hear the request of us lowly peasants. And he would actually fulfill these requests. If John was the only one to say this in scripture, we might think that he's, he's gone a little crazy in his old age. But John, of course, does not make up this promise himself For Jesus Christ spoke the same thing. Turn with me, if you will, back to the gospel of John once again. This time in John 14. And do ask that you turn there just because it is so important to see the glory of this promise. John chapter 14, Jesus is in the process of comforting his disciples for he has told them of his impending crucifixion, his impending departure. And in the midst of comforting his believers, he says this, beginning in verse 12 of John 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the work that I do, he will do also. Greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so the Father may, I, may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Here again we see the same language that John is, is clearly borrowing from in 1 John. For again we see this marriage between God's promise, God's faithfulness, and the role of the disciple. Here again we see this shocking promise made by the Son of God that if we ask anything according to His name, He will give it to us. This is an incredible promise of God, even if it comes with these qualifications of of being obedient, even if it comes with these qualifications of asking in His name. The idea that you would have the ability to, To get the ear of the king of creation, the idea that he would hear you, the idea that he would grant you any request of all should astound us. We should be amazed every time we come to God in prayer. Overwhelmed by the fact that God actually hears what I'm saying right now. Even as the millions and perhaps billions of other believers pray, at the same time he hears everything and he grants you your request. Again, we must come to God with complete complete surrender. We come to God with an appropriate attitude, but we come to God nonetheless. Speaking to this idea of prayer, Paul Miller in his book, The Praying Life, says this. Like a parent whose toddler is about to wander off, Jesus is continually yelling, My father has a big heart and loves the details of your life. Tell him what you need and he will do it for you. For Jesus wants us to tap into the generous heart of the Father. He wants us to lose all confidence in ourselves because he knows apart from him, we can do nothing. Time and time again, Jesus commands us to pray, commands us to tap into that generosity. Time and time again, New Testament authors speak of this. And yet time and time again, we struggle with this, do we not? We struggle to to maintain this balance of humility and faithfulness. Oftentimes we struggle with that temptation to to try to impress God with some flowery language. To try to impress God as if we deserve to be heard. Other times we fail to pray because we assume we don't deserve to be heard. And to be fair, it's, it's difficult to strike this balance, but again, thankfully in Scripture, we see this balance displayed beautifully in numerous men and women of faith. Earlier we looked at the example of Peter for confidence. Here, I want us to turn to an Old Testament example, that of Hannah. Because in the the person of Hannah, I think we see one of the most precious pictures of this prayer that, that John is talking about. This prayer that mixes humility with dependence. This prayer that mixes earthly longings with a glorious faith in God. In the book of 1 Samuel, in the opening chapter, Hannah herself is going through a tremendous trial because she desperately wants a child. She desperately wants to be able to give her husband that gift, and we understand in that ancient culture how much it meant to be able to extend that family line. We live in a culture, and of course, that has changed drastically, but all of us have either experienced this longing, or certainly we know people who experience that longing now. That God-given desire and how painful it is when God does not grant us that desire. My wife and I struggled with this for years, this struggle of infertility. I feel like I certainly can appreciate Hannah's heart here. In the midst of her struggle, we see this beautiful picture. We are told that Hannah has gone with her husband, gone with her, gone with her family up to praise God, to worship God, to offer their sacrifices. I'm picking up in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 9, we read, Hannah arose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now, Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat of uh, of the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me. And do not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Eli said to her, how long will you make yourself drunk? Put away that wine from yourself. But Hannah replied, no, my Lord, I'm a woman oppressed in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've poured out my soul before the Lord do not consider your maidservant as worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Here we have this brief picture of Hannah, who as one commentator said, is perhaps the most pious woman in all the Old Testament. Here we have this shocking display of vulnerability, of desperation, and of undying confidence in Yahweh. Hannah is broken because she desperately wants a child she does not hide that from god she does not hide behind some facade of everything's great i'm thrilled of how my life is going no she weeps bitterly before god and she begs god for this child but as she does of course she also acknowledges the the power of yahweh the faithfulness of yahweh the fact that he still deserves the glory in all of this for she promises to give this child over to him if, if he so grants her this request. Hannah here is displaying a beautiful intimacy with her creator. An intimacy that is even confusing to the priest. For he cannot understand what is taking place before her. Yet, In God's infinite wisdom and grace, Hannah's example is forever canonized. I think in part because it is a picture of prayer. It's a picture of the type of prayer that John himself is commanding and speaking of. It is this beautiful mixture of humble dependence, of acknowledgement of our own weaknesses, but also this faithful trust in a loving Father. The prayer of a faithful disciple is not marked by some flowery language. It's not marked by a trying to impress God or impress others that we're praying in front of as I think we've all heard people do before. We talk to God in the same way ultimately we talk to our parent. God already knows the longings of your heart so it's foolish to hide them from him. God knows how broken you feel so it is foolish to hide that brokenness. We come before God broken. We come before God because we know we are utterly dependent upon him. We come to God not to do to impress him. But we come to God begging him for provision. Knowing that he's able to do so and knowing that he wants to provide for us. And every prayer we offer, regardless of how minor it might be in the eyes of your peers, every request is precious in the eyes of your Father. And if it is so according to his will, he will grant it to you. Believer, does this mark your prayer life? Are you broken before your Father? Are you honest before your Father? Are you daily beseeching your Father for your request? If you are not, you are failing to understand the assurance that John speaks of. If you are not, you are failing to understand the true dependency that we all have. This type of prayer can only come from a heart that is marked without shame. This type of prayer can only be marked by a heart that is entirely confident in their God. This is the gift of our assurance. As we pray these things, and as our hearts are marked by this type of prayer, John continues to move forward and reminds us that we are not just unhindered in our prayer, but we're also unhindered in our daily obedience. Again, pick it back up in verses 23 and 24. Once again, as a result of this freedom we have, we are told this is his commandment, meaning this is what he expects of us, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, Just as he commanded us, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know that by this, that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. Again, brothers and sisters in Christ, we see the ultimate results of this confidence. Confidence not just to approach God in prayer, but confidence to know we are in his will daily. We can know without a doubt that we are obeying him because God has made his standard pretty clear, hasn't he? Again, John repeats that what he said so many times already in First John. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. So oftentimes in the midst of the debates that revolve around this question of what is God's will for my life? Well, we can begin to believe that God's will is some hidden message that will require some extra level of spiritual maturity to figure out. But God's not that cruel to us. God never hides his desires for us. He's made it abundantly clear. He has told us time and time again, love the Lord your God and love others. Jesus made this clear. John repeats the same message over and over again. Believer, brother and sister in Christ, if you believe in Jesus Christ, meaning if you believe in the atonement, believe that he is the son of God, that he alone is the Lord and master of your life, and if you are loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're in the will of God. End of story. Don't let other professing believers cast doubt and shame on you because you're not living up to their standard. And Don't let other believers cause you to doubt your salvation because you do not line up with them perfectly in every other minor doctrine or every other practice they have. No, the expectations of God are far more simple than that. And thank God for that. God calls us to believe this basic doctrine and God calls us to actively love one another. If we do this, we can be confident that we're living out to God's standard. This does not mean, of course, that we ignore all other doctrines, that we ignore all other practices, but it means that we, return, we regularly return to these basic practices. And then we're trying to judge our maturity and trying to figure out if we're really living up to the standards God given us well, we we go back to these same tests that John has given us over and over again. Do we believe the right thing about Jesus and does our life reflect it? Believer, if you do believe the right things and if your life reflects it, then then you can be confident. Now, having said that, having said that, there are numerous professing believers who fail these tests miserably. There are undoubtedly, those of you sitting here this morning, who when push comes to shove, really don't understand who Jesus is. And when push comes to shove, your life in no way reflects the love for your fellow believers. So please hear me when I say to you, this passage is not an encouragement to you. This passage is a reminder to you of whether or not you falling short. And so, unbeliever, do not lie to yourself and think that you can fool your way into heaven by memorizing a bunch of Bible verses, by giving a bunch of money to the church. Salvation is purely by faith in Jesus Christ, and the life of a believer is marked purely by love for others. Thankfully, we know this commandment. We know the basic standard. And not only that, we can know that as we strive to obey God, we are not doing it on our own. Yet again, as John continues this discussion, he reminds us where our ultimate confidence lies. And it does not lie in our own personal abilities. It lies in the abiding presence of Jesus Christ. Verse 24, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Again, Jesus Christ spoke of this reality back in John 15. In that same discussion in which he is comforting his disciples, as he's looking ahead to his own departure, Jesus reminds them in, verse, in chapter 15 of John, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away and every branch that bears fruit he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because the world, which because the word I've spoken to you, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of it in and of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. The language of of Jesus here is not to be some puzzle to us to try to figure out. It's ultimately meant to be an encouragement. For again, it's a reminder of what John has already said in chapter three. Earlier in chapter three, John has said, "If you are a Christian, you will, by definition, look more and more like Jesus as you grow up." Because the Spirit will be at work in you. Jesus is saying the same thing here. If you are in Christ, you will categorically be producing fruit. Not simply because of your own striving, but because, as John reminds us, the Holy Spirit indwells you. And so he'll grow you in your love. He will grow you in your patience. He will grow you in the many other fruits of the Spirit that Paul mentions. And he will grow you in your assurance. For even in the midst of our own doubt, that spirit who indwells us, that spirit who, can, who, who continues to build us up, also cries out to the Father as this means of encouragement. The Apostle Paul spoke of that ultimate gift of the Spirit in Romans 8, and we'll speak more of that gift next week. But again, in Romans chapter 8, speaking of this assurance of the Spirit, Paul says in verse 15 through 17, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, you received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children heirs also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Yet again, brother and sister in Christ, your confidence to remain in the will of God, your confidence to, to please your Father, is not rooted in your own personal abilities. It's not rooted in your belief that you're smarter than anyone else or more talented than anyone else. It's rooted in your growing sense of dependency upon the Spirit who indwells you. It's rooted in that growing faith in which you say day and day, Father, I believe, help my unbelief, help me grow in this belief. It's marked in the reality that if we walk according to the Spirit, the Spirit will produce this fruit in us. And so regardless of the doubt that the world heaps upon us, Regardless of the many times in which you and I will fail, and we will fail spectacularly. We, as believers, are marked by assurance. Because we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Because we have this growing sense of love and dependency for Christ. A growing sense of love for our fellow believers. And it is when we know these things for certain that we're able to daily approach God freely. Daily approach God with complete humility but also dependence and trust and we're able to daily serve him knowing full well that we are accomplishing his will brothers and sisters in christ i pray i pray that you experience this assurance daily if you are here and you've not yet put your faith in jesus christ i pray that you abandon your hope of saving yourself for you never will Regardless of how intelligent you are, regardless of how talented you are, apart from a proper faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, you will be damned for all eternity. And so, unbeliever, repent of your sins now. Place your trust entirely in Jesus Christ now. You will be saved. If you have any questions about that, as always, please seek me out in the lobby afterwards or find someone For my brothers and sisters in Christ, let us daily lean more and more into our dependence upon Christ. There's no shame in this. Let us daily be reminded of how weak we are and how much we need Jesus Christ. But as we lean into that dependence, let us grow in our boldness. Let us grow in our confidence to approach the Father on his His throne. Let us grow in our boldness to speak clearly the gospel of light to the world around us. And let us walk in utter confidence, not because of power that resides within ourselves, but because of the Holy Spirit who is working within us. And as we do so, let us enjoy the glory that is a life of assurance. Let us enjoy resting daily in our Father who loves us. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the fact, that, despite the fact that we are sinners, despite the fact that we fail you daily. that You love us. Despite our own weaknesses, despite our own daily failures, you have chosen to use us to be ambassadors of your heavenly kingdom. Thank you, God, for that honor. God, for my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning who are doubting their salvation, who doubt your love for them, I pray your spirit might be at work within them. Holy Spirit, cry out on their behalf. Grow them in their faith. Grow them in their assurance. Grow them in their joy. And for all of us, God, might we daily strive to enjoy this assured heart that allows us to approach you both as our King and as our Father. And God, as I mentioned earlier, Lord, we pray for all who who are here who do not know you. And perhaps there are some of those who have professed faith but have not actually placed their faith in you, God. Reveal that deception to them. Save them this moment, God. We praise you. We're internally indebted to you, God. And we pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name, amen.